0: book of Hebrews and we are going through our study of salvation if you like the theological term it is soteriology the study of the doctrine of salvation and uh, we talked last week about what sin does and why there is a need of salvation and then uh, the word, uh, the Bible word is atonement. Now, the idea of atonement is primarily uh, Old Testament in its scope. It's the idea of the rolling back of the penalty. It's the idea of making things right. But uh, they had the day of atonement that was repeated often. Now, tonight we're going to talk. start out with the word atonement. Redemption. Now, redemption is the finished work. It is the purchase price paid. It is the buying back, actually. Um, I know this somewhat silly illustration, uh, talking about such a great thing, but uh, you clip the coupon, they give you the coupon, and then the company will buy back that little piece of paper by giving you a discount. Now, the way it worked with redemption was, and this is important, is we were sold under sin, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us because of sin we were separated from God, and Jesus paid the price. He took upon him the penalty, the suffering, of our sin, he paid for our sins that we might be made free. Now, if you tune into the TVN crowd, and I don't recommend that you do that, uh, they will often talk about the devil gets paid for our sins. And that nothing could be further from the truth. The penalty was God's law, not the devil's law. It was God's law that was broken. It was from God from whom we were separated. And when Jesus paid the price for our sins, He paid that price to God the Father on our behalf. Are are we together on that one? Because that is critical. Critical. Uh, you say, Pastor, why are you making such a big deal? I mean, I've known that all my my life, but there's a lot of people that don't. And uh, as a believer in Christ, you you need to be sensitive to that because people will say all the right things. And this is just one of those little things I want to make you aware of, so that if you're talking to someone about the Bible and they start. Uh, making any kind of statement like that somehow Jesus paid the devil for our sins, you know you're dealing with someone who has great theological error in their in their past, in their understanding of the Scriptures. And, and there's a, there is going to be... A, a, you will need to be very careful as you talk to them about biblical things. And... Uh, let's just go to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 and we'll try to pick up some of the context. But again, if we, if we pick up all of the context, we'll be all night and not even cover redemption. We could, we could spend months on, uh, on this one subject, but we want to give an overview of it. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, this is Hebrews 9, 12, but by his own blood, he entered in Once into the holy place, having obtained an eternal redemption for us. let's skip down chapter 10. It says, for the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. And so, here we see the idea of the atonement in the Old Testament, The priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Leviticus chapter 16. He would do that every year on the day of atonement. It would be then God would accept that because in his timetable, he knew that Jesus was coming to pay the price. You see, faith in God is a very simple thing. It takes man to make it complicated. When Abraham offered his sacrifices, what did he do? He didn't necessarily have a shovel like we would today, but some kind of digging tool. He would uh, mound up a mound of earth and set the wood on there. Uh, Maybe he would find a pile of stones and just pile them together and and Abraham would make altars wherever he was and wanted to worship God. In fact, God had given him special instruction to go up to Mount Moriah and set an uh, an altar up there and offer Isaac his son. Now, God knew what he was going to do just before Abraham was to kill his son and burn the body on the altar God called to him out of heaven and said, don't touch him. He said, but there's going to come a day when I'm going to offer my son. That's why Abraham said, read in the book of Genesis there, chapter uh, 22 is the story, how it says, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen as Isaac was walking up the top of the mountain there, he said, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And he said, The Lord shall provide what? Himself. A sacrifice. That's talking about redemption. Jesus paid the price, it says very simply here, once. Now, now, What went on in the Old Testament tabernacle was a picture, a living illustration, as well as a physical truth. It happened every year on the Day of Atonement, as long as the tabernacle and then the temple. After it was standing, the priest would follow those procedures as written in the Word of God. The Bible tells us Jesus entered into the holy place In heaven. Into the presence of God. For us. The mercy seat. Is a picture. Is a representation of the throne of God. And Jesus sprinkled his blood. Upon the throne of God. The only way I know how to put it. And I don't mean to, to be light or trivial in any way. But. The blood was sprinkled on the very lap of God. That's why you can't lose your salvation. That's why it's eternal. That's why it was only done once. And it's never to be repeated. Some religions believe that they re-crucify Christ every time they meet. And the simple truth is, that's not redemption. That's not atonement. You see, atonement was rolling back until the redemption was complete. So to do anything now would be to transgress Scripture at its deepest and most critical juncture. I'm glad that Jesus was on the cross, when he was on the cross, said, it is finished. Now, I can't explain other than what the Bible says. Look with, this in verse, look with me in verse 14. Well, let's read verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works... To serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. That they which are called might receive the promise of internal inheritance. The price was paid to God by Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I like to think of it in this way. I like to, to put pictures in my mind. And I, I love the illustration of that priest on the Day of Atonement standing there and, and killing that uh, baby goat for the people and gathering its blood as he had already been into the place once with the blood of a bullock for himself. And he walks in and... And takes the censer and fills the most holy place with the smoke of the incense. And then hangs it up and steps behind that curtain. The second time on the same day, the only day of the year, that he enters into that total darkness. And he dips his hand in that bowl or pitcher of blood that he's carrying. He sprinkles it seven times. And then he turns around and he walks out. And he is trusting that God received that blood to give Israel peace with God for another year. It says that Jesus entered into the holy place in heaven, not in the darkness of the tabernacle. There was no need for Him to take the censer and put it behind the veil because He is God. And He strode through those mighty beings that surround the throne. And and I can't imagine that there was any noise in heaven as he carried his own blood in a golden bowl and dipped his hand in and sprinkled it. The Bible says, having obtained an eternal redemption for us. We go down to the end of chapter 9. It says, That he um, let me just read it here for. um, Verse 24 for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figure of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself as it was is appointed unto man once to die but after this the judgment so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I want you to skip down to verse 18 of chapter 10. Well, let's, uh, uh, let's get verse 11 first. And every high priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. Uh, yeah, somebody rang the doorbell there. Um, sorry, verse 11. As every high priest standeth daily, ministering the offering, and oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified and we come down to verse 18 now where the now where remission of these is there is no more offering for sins for sin having obtained therefore having therefore brethren boldness To enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is, to say, his flesh. Now, we got to, there are just so many things connected with this idea of redemption. You see, it is the law that demands the penalty. Why does the law demand a penalty? Because the law has convicted us. If if we could just learn this thing, and you've heard me say it. I hope you don't get tired of hearing me say this. If we could only understand, no law ever made by any man has ever stopped anybody from doing anything wrong. That's not the purpose of the law. If we could just explain to our city council that making a whole bunch of new laws is not going to stop anybody. What what we need... You see, there used to be a day in this country when we didn't need all those laws. You know why? Because people had character. Now people are characters. And we need all those laws, right? Uh, the simple truth of the matter is... The law is there to convict you when you've done wrong. And it is there to demand a punishment equal to the crime that has been committed. And God's laws are perfect. His law demands that the penalty of sin is what? Death. And death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. But, let's be careful. I I thought this controversy was dead 20-some years ago when I was a very young man in the ministry. Uh, But one of the preachers alluded to it uh, at the meeting, so it must still be around. Uh, There was a a preacher, uh, not a Baptist preacher, out in California. Had a big radio following. His name was John MacArthur. And... And uh, he made a big deal about it wasn't the blood of Jesus, it was the death of Jesus. Now, how many of you can see the absolute folly in that statement right from the beginning? Uh, you can't separate Jesus' death and the shedding of his blood. You can't do it. And uh, he, his explanation was, he was trying to explain to a Catholic priest, that it's not the blood uh, that saves you. And all he would have to do is explain to the Catholic priest, it's not the Mass that saves you. You see, you can't separate the death and the blood. They're the same thing. Jesus died to shed His blood on the cross. The life of the flesh is in the blood. There is no separation, there is no salvation without the blood. Jesus gathered His blood, the Bible says, through the eternal Spirit. He gathered His blood in a bowl and He ascended into heaven and He sprinkled it on the mercy seat one time. And where the sacrifice has been paid, where the law is satisfied, then there's no more sacrifice. I was showing a preacher at the meeting and said, We finished our auditorium. He said, Is that it is finished for the auditorium or is that the spiritual one? I said, It's the spiritual one. There's still work to be done. There'll always be work to be done. But the simple truth is, I want everybody that walks in this building to understand something. Jesus finished. The work, that's what the word redemption speaks about. And that finished work separates us from the penalties and the judgment and the jurisdiction and all of those things that are included in the law. Every once in a while you'll run into somebody of some strange culturism and they'll say, Listen, you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've got to keep the law too. Uh, No, you don't. Well, if I didn't believe I had to keep the law, I'd just go out and do anything I wanted to. Well, that proves you're unsaved. That's what the Bible teaches. You see, you aren't going to serve Jesus because of fear. You serve Him because of love. The Sermon on the Mount sets that out so thoroughly and so simply. Jesus said, they said of an old time. Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. He said, The new commandment is thou shalt not hate. Now how are you going to do that? Uh, Only by the controlling power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. Jesus said, of old time, they said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the commandments. Jesus said, thou shalt not lust. How are you going to do that? Only by having the Holy Spirit of God in control in your life. Only by starting my relationship with God at the redemption instead of, making it the goal that I'll get to someday if I'm good enough. Do you see the difference there? Most people, when they talk about salvation, are talking about a process by which they do good things, and hopefully someday, as I get closer to God and farther from the world and less able to do bad things, I guess that's one advantage of getting old, is you just have less energy to sin, right? Uh, But the simple truth of the matter is, You don't get your salvation by what you do. Otherwise, we're back under the law. You see, I start with it is finished. I start at the redemption that Christ has given me. The law is non-topical because my behavior in my life ought to be so far above the law that it's not even worthy talking about the Ten Commandments anymore. The only problem is most of us never get there because we don't understand redemption. We're still busy trying to do it ourselves. And when we do something wrong, and, and we're just programmed this way. And parents, be, be careful. When you discipline your children, don't say, You did this bad thing, now I'm going to make you do two good things. That, that's not right. You did this bad thing, you're going to get punished for doing this bad thing, and we're going to work on not repeating this bad thing. But what is over is over. Let's not do it again. Amen? Redemption tells me that the price has been paid. I am free from the law to live in God's grace. There is no more sacrifice for sin. And this will help you understand some of the more difficult passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6 is a place where everybody kind of gets uh, tied up in knots and they start believing that, that you can lose your salvation in Hebrews chapter 6. But if you understand what it says here, it is the unsaved person who is constantly seeking some type of sacrifice for their sins. Because they don't believe that what Jesus did was enough. In fact, Brother Sam preached one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard on Tuesday night on when God isn't enough in your life. And uh, uh, you'll get a very poor imitation of that sermon in several different ways over the next several months. But uh, I'm going to get to The copies and uh, and really, I want to encourage uh, you as members of our church to get the MP3 and listen to that sermon. Uh, You need to hear it. Um, But the where we are with redemption, and again, I got to keep moving. Let's go to Galatians chapter three and just pick up a few verses here. Galatians chapter three. We'll start in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall Live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This term, redemption, yes, we understand that Jesus had to pay the price. That when he said, it is finished, he had paid that price. And we don't have all of the time sequence. We do not see things the same way God sees things. But the simplest understanding is resurrection Sunday morning. When Mary met him, he called her name. He said, touch me not. For I must ascend to your God and to my God. Then a few minutes later... The other women that were with him, with her, who had gone back to tell the disciples, met Jesus and they held him by his feet. Something must have happened right there. In our understanding. And I believe that's when all of these things were done. Just for a human thought process so that we can see God's timetable and how he works. And once the price is paid, there's no more penalty for the law. That's why I don't worry about keeping the law. That's why I'm not uh worried when bacon is on the menu. If you had to keep the law, you'd have to be worried about that thing. Uh when our church was first meeting, our, one of uh we used to rent uh, a building from the Seventh-day Adventist organization. Uh because it's not church. Uh and Uh, we had to be very careful. Uh, When we had a church dinner, we had to tell everybody, nobody bring any pork, no coffee. Could you imagine having a Baptist fellowship with no coffee? We had to do that for four years because they were trying to keep the law. And one time I opened the cabinet and you know what I found in there? A big bottle of Mountain Dew. It wasn't caffeine-free either. And one time I asked the the caretaker there, he used to just love asking questions that he didn't think I could answer. And so one day uh, I said, What do you do? Uh, You keep the Sabbath. That's right. He says, Well, yes, we keep the Sabbath. I said, Your people drive cars on the Sabbath day. He said, well, God knows that we've got to get to church. I said, that's not the way it works in the Bible, man. I said, they stoned the guy for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Uh, uh, you're kindling a fire uh, in all eight cylinders at about 2,400 RPM. Try to figure out how many fires you just kindled, all right? Uh, You know, the simple truth of the matter, they don't keep the Sabbath. They don't keep the law. Nobody can keep the law. In fact, one of the questions I always like to ask is, is Daniel in heaven? He lived before Jesus died on the cross, did he not? Yeah. Yeah. When he was just a little boy, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Never once in Daniel's adult life was he able to stand in the city of Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement and pray as the priest went in and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. Do you know what was in the most holy place in Jesus' day? A white marble slab. The ark was gone. If salvation were in the law, every person from the destruction of the temple till the time that Jesus died on the cross and rose again would have gone to hell because there was no blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. There was no real atonement made. You see, it's not the works of the law that save you. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the temple was still standing when he died on the cross. And the veil was rent to show that there was now no separation between the holy place and the most holy place. Because the high priest had accomplished once and forever all the work that would ever need to be done behind the veil. That's redemption. It will affect every moment of your life if you'll think about redemption. It should affect the way you pray. It will affect the way you look at God and the way you understand God. And when the Calvinist comes along and starts trying to tell you, tell us that Jesus Christ only died for those people that got, that get saved, the, the ones that he chooses, we read the book of Hebrews, one sacrifice for sin forever. That's redemption. It doesn't say, for God so loved the elect. And I don't care what language you put it in, you can't get that in that verse. It says, for God so loved the world. That's why we reject Protestantism and, and the Reformed theology that goes along with it. Someone said, well, what kind of theology do you believe? I believe in a biblical theology. Amen? That's why we're just studying the Bible and we're coming up with Bible words. And, and God gives us all these incredible words to explain salvation. Atonement gives us 2,000 years of history of the priest dipping his finger in the bowl and, and sprinkling on the mercy seat and sacrificing those animals. They tell us that in the temple of Jerusalem, when, uh, when Jesus walked the streets that they would sacrifice so many lambs on Passover that the blood of those lambs as it was poured out around the altar would seep through the paving stones of the temple court and literally paint the side of the mountain on which Jerusalem was built red with the blood of those animals. It's over 100,000 lambs. Stop Think about that. One day. How many priests would it take to get that job done? And yet, every one of those sacrifices tell us, make a remembrance of sins. That's atonement. Redemption. It is finished. Both work in our salvation. Let's look at the next word here. I think we can get through this in the next few moments. The word reconciliation, and I did not put these in any order other than the order that I like to put it in for the outline is atonement was the rolling back, the making things right with God uh, in that effect. Jesus obtained the atonement was the atonement. He was the thing that made things right with God, but it was only done once. That's why the word redemption is there. The purchase price was paid. We come to the word reconciliation, and this is uh, the making of things in agreement. Uh, how many of you believe in reconciling your checkbook every month? Uh, you take the statement from the bank. And you take your little piece of paper there that you keep track of your checks on, and you sit down, you do all the math, and and you reconcile your statement. Uh, You ought to do that if you have a checking account. You know why? Because, see, the idea of reconciling is not just making an agreement, it's being able to prove there's an agreement being able to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I have every reason and right to believe that the amount of money that is printed on this piece of paper is actually in my bank account. Because sometimes banks make mistakes. More often than not, we make mistakes. And we need to be able to prove what is right. Or you could lose a lot of money. Somebody could come up and steal your money and you wouldn't even know it was gone. You wouldn't be able to prove that it was in there. And see, here's what reconciliation is. Reconciliation is an act of God. It is God proving that it is proper and that it is right for Him to erase the debt of our sin, you see our sins separate us from God when we are reconciled to God, we are made at one with him, but God is not the kind of God that uh, the the average Protestant believes in that well, God understands, and he just you know he just kind of uh, uh, He he forgives us. Well, we'll get to the word forgiveness in just a few minutes, but you can't have forgiveness without payment. That's one of the problems we have in our society today. Is we want forgiveness without any remuneration. We want forgiveness without any payment made, without anything made right, with no reconciliation would be the word. Listen. Listen. If you destroy someone else's property, there ought to be a reconciliation made, where you are, uh, where the owner proves the damages that were done and the value of those damages and what it's going to take to repair, and you pay those damages and have the thing repaired. That that's the basis of forgiveness. You see, God evaluated the damage that your sin did to your life that originally belonged to him. And so Jesus died on the cross to redeem us, to pay that price. And now because of redemption, God has the ability to reconcile to make us in agreement without being one of those whimsy, flimsy, mamsy, pamsy, blah, 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 you know, kind of people that just, ah, we'll just, we'll just agree to disagree. That's not God. God's accounting is accurate. Every sin. Can you imagine the library in heaven? As it records the life deeds of every human being that has ever lived in all of history. Those that are supposed to know these things tell us there is, there have, there could have been as many as 125 billion human beings in all of recorded history. Now stop and think about that. Each an individual soul. Each individually accountable to God. And each one's deeds recorded in God's library of books. But he's got one book. It's called the book of life. The best way I understand the book of life is every human being at the time of their birth is written into that book. And when you die in your sins, your name is blotted out. Because it says in the, uh, in the Bible, I will not blot, blot out, um, asking God not to blot his name out of the book. And here we have this idea of reconciliation. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Because there's two parts to reconciliation, just like there's two parts to forgiveness. And we won't get that far tonight, but Colossians chapter one, verse 20 says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. So here we have this idea of being able to prove God made peace through the blood of His cross. Who did God make peace with? Himself. It was our sins that caused the strife. Jesus paid the price for our sins. Peace was made. Now God can take whosoever will, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And he has the ability to go through his record book and by every entry of sin under that person's name, paid in full. With the blood of Jesus Christ. That's reconciling. Have you ever reconciled your. Tried to reconcile your checkbook. And found it two cents off. Or three cents off. Has anybody ever done that? I can't stand that. Well and. When I do it for the church. That's not allowed. You got to find it. It's there Somewhere. I remember one time I was letting someone else do it and came down about four or five months and found out we'd been a nickel off for the last five months. You know what? There's only one way to fix that. You've got to unreconcile every transaction and go back through statement by statement by statement. I went through five months of statement, hundreds of transactions. I found it. Because, see, I know it's there. Numbers don't lie. And when God says that He's reconciled, He's accounted for every sin. I'll tell you what, there's not a one of us in this room that could remember every sin that we've sinned. Most of us can't, aren't even aware of all the sins that we've done since Sunday. Because we're just not paying attention. God reconciled. Everyone. But there's a second part to this reconciliation thing. I want you to turn with me to to 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Just so we can slap the Calvinists down one more time. Make sure that we don't get tainted with the Reasoning of man and the thought processes of man and keep our theology biblical. Start reading in verse 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Well, let's start 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. There's both parts of reconciliation right there. In the same verse, God reconciled us to him and he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, to wit, to think about, to understand that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you get what is being said here? Jesus was made sin for us. Jesus was not made a sinner. There's a difference. This is, and again, here's another passage, very clear, that will help you understand the passage. It's not so clear. When God spoke to Cain in the book of Genesis, he said, If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. It's not that sin was coiled out there like a snake waiting to pounce on him. One of Abel's lambs was lying right there. You see, it was a sacrifice. When we do not well, we need a sacrifice. Abel did not understand about redemption and reconciliation. He just knew that when you sinned, you brought the blood of a lamb. That was atonement. And that pointed to the final redemption. But God says, listen, I have reconciled you to me by believing in Jesus Christ. Every sin that you have sinned has been accounted for and paid for by Jesus Christ. And now you have a ministry of reconciliation. Guess what? That means you do not have the right to hold against any other human being anything wrong that they do. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. And that you have a duty to tell other people how that they can be reconciled unto God. And that you must choose to keep your accounts short, as we say. That's what 1 John 1 9 is all about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about daily living for God. Because we do wrong things. And why can we go to God over and over and over again? Because of reconciliation. You know what? God's already recorded your sin before you did it. Does that mean God's responsible for your sin? No, you are. But He knew you would do it. And he was able to reconcile all things in Jesus Christ. Because he's God. Amen? And so he's given to us as he has reconciled us to him. He wants us to be reconciled to others. And he wants us to tell others how to be reconciled to God. You see, God can prove. You know, we sing a lot of songs like, uh, when I get to heaven, the angel said, "Why should I let you in?" And, and I sang, uh, "I came through the cross." So I think uh, Assurance sang that song, or maybe Glory, one of the Heartland groups, and it's a nice song. But that's not the way it's going to work. You see, we have an advocate, a lawyer, a mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus. And when you and I stand before God, it is Jesus who is going to prove that we have the right to enter heaven. Not you by what you've done. Because you see, He paid for our sins. He's the one that reconciled us. He's the one that has the books. You see, if we look at ourselves, we know we do wrong things. But when God looks at us, He knows everything. That's why he reconciles it. But if you have reconciliation from God, then it's no big deal to give it to other people. We'll have the same theme coming through when we get to forgiveness. That's why Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, I'm not forgiving you. It's... It's a fearful thought. But it's part of our salvation. It's part of the reconciliation that God has given us because He took care of every sin. And He knows every sin. He paid for every sin. Now He has the ability to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt in the greatest court in the universe, in the presence of Almighty God, it is Jesus who is going to get out the books and prove Hey, this one was reconciled by me. Every sin. He goes in. It will be Jesus who will say, This one refused my reconciliation. Depart ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Redemption. Reconciliation. Guess what? We got justification. Sanctification. Sanctification. We have glorification. We have forgiveness. we got a lot more words. And God did all of them. At one instant, when you said, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross and He rose again. And I call upon the name of the Lord and ask Him to save me. Then we're going to talk about how he put us into his family. We were born into his family. We were purchased into his family. Redemption. And we were adopted. You can't be in God's family any more than you are. In fact, there's no way you can be a member of any human family as much as you can of God's. I'm getting ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Lord, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see The incredibly great and magnificent work that you have done to save us. Far above our ability to reason and understand and comprehend. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts and minds to stay close to God. To be reconciled. To not let things go on in our lives. And to take that reconciliation and let it apply to our relationships with others. And, and to implore and beg and, and plead with others to be reconciled unto God. Lord, help us understand redemption and how it removes us from the penalty of the law. Lord, I just ask that you would give us an understanding of what Bible salvation is. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll have the piano play. If you need to slip out and spend a few minutes, the altar is open. If you're here tonight and you're not sure about your salvation, would you let us take the Bible and and help you understand what it means to be born again the Bible way?